We're going to be in verses 6 through 19. We're actually going to spend two weeks on verses 6 through 19, looking at it from two different angles. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, the Bible, this passage will be on the screen, but I hope you do have a Bible so you can follow along uh, with us and look at the various passages through we get to jump into throughout the day. Here's how Jesus continued to pray. He prayed in verses 1 through 5 that uh, for his own glory and for the Father's glory, and then it picks up in verse 6. He says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have Given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13 But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world's. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world's. To sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. Well, we're going to dive into the very simple statement as to what we're reading here in John 17. It is no little fact, but it's simply this. Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for you. And if we were to give two seconds of thought about it, we would recognize how desperately we need him to pray for us. If you are uh, doing a deep exegesis of this passage and kind of looking kind of a verse by verse and breaking it down as to the literary approach to how the writer kind of structured his what re- recall of Jesus' prayer here, verses 13 and 14 are actually the hinge verses. It's where things, things it's kind of the center around the, the transition point for the whole section that I just read here. And here's what verses 13 and 14 say. He says this, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world. In other words, I am praying these things in the world so they may be heard that in order that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' long is that they would have joy, but in what context? Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. There are so many themes in the chapters here of John 17, in particular in verses 6 through 19 that, that pop up in this prayer, but there are two that drive the occasion of Jesus' prayers for his disciples. 
Two things that, of the occasion of the moment here that he recognized about the, the context in which his disciples are going to be living in that drive his prayers. And the first context is this, is that Jesus won't be with them. He is leaving physically. He says it multiple times that he is going to the Father. He is leaving this world, but they are staying and his, what the other part, the other occasion, the context in which we live that drives Jesus' prayers for us is that we will be hated. That Jesus' people, people of the word, people who follow him, people who are not of this world, us as Christians will be hated. And that there will be people, we are going to be men. He is looking at his disciples, the men in which he has spent the last three years of his life with and for whom he's about to go die for. And he's looking at them and he knows that they will be persecuted, that they will be hated, they will be reviled by kin and country. And Jesus will no longer be with them there physically to hold them, to be close to them. And his recognition, having lived in this world, having endured in this world himself, and knowing that he is now leaving his disciples behind, is that he recognizes that this is a tough world, that this is a hard place to live, that the world hates our God, and he hates all the, the world hates those who follow God's. That they hate your children. This world hates our children. This world hates our way of life. The world hates the church. But in verses 13 and 14, we hear what Jesus longs for us. That in the face of a world that hates us, and the face of a world that it surrounds us with evil on all sides, what does he pray for? That, that we might have joy in Jesus. Jesus wants us to have the same joy that he has with the Father. That he would hear, like, just as Jesus heard of the Father, the Father speaking his truth over him, he wants us to have, have that kind of voice speaking over us, to give us joy in the midst of persecution, to give us joy in the midst of hatred, to give us joy in the midst of suffering and in the context of evil. Jesus wants us to hear his words, in particular his words of praying and there's a reason why John puts this in his gospel. It's because Jesus prayed these words in the upper room specifically so that his disciples could hear him pray. These are the type of prayers that Jesus prays over you even now. And this is the beautiful thing, the picture that we are given here. The inside look we are given into Jesus' prayers for us now. And in hearing his words speak... In hearing his prayers for us, it is by hearing these truths prayed over us by Jesus in this passage that you are enabled to get, you have the joy to endure the hate, the evil, and the suffering that we live in in this world. So what do you hear? What do you hear? What are the things that we hear in this prayer in verses 6 through 9 that might actually give you some sense of joy in the face of hatred and suffering? The three things I want to look at this morning Three statements and claims that Jesus tells us about ourselves and about what he, he prays for us. What do you hear when Jesus prays? First thing you hear is this. In Jesus' prayer for us, you hear that you belong to God. In the face of hatred and suffering, a world that despises you, you hear this truth. You are mine. Verses 6 through 10. I'm going to stop and just underline things for you left and right here. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were. We were possessed by God, and you gave them to me, Jesus said, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them, Jesus says, but I am not praying for the world, but I am praying for those you have 
given to me, for they are yours, God. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And no less than five times there in the verses between 6 and 10 does God use the possessive verbiage and grammar in talking about us, that we are gods, that the various members of the Trinity actually give us to each other. This is actually highlighted in other places in John 17. We saw it briefly last week. In John 17 too, it says this, since you have given him, this is the son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And in verse 24, near the end of the prayer, Jesus says something very similar. He says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Thus, in the space of 26 verses, our Lord makes a very particular statement. Nine times, he tells us of who we belong to whose we are, and very clearly he says that we are the Lord's. We are his particular possession in this world. We are actually his gift to himself, and ultimately we will share in his glory. Did you know that you were made to be God's? You were made to be God's possession, his gift to himself. There's been a series of movies that actually, in some ways, in their own way, communicate this. Have you ever, if you've seen the movies of the three Toy Story movies, what is it that, is like that, that drives toys in their identity? Is this longing to be possessed by a child. That they were given as a gift to a child, and that is, that bears up in them all that their identity, that they are possessed, that they are loved, that they are cared for by this child. They're like, this is what I was created to be, to be possessed by this child's to be chosen, to be loved by this child. And this is why you were made, that you might be God's cherished possession. And indeed, this is the story of the world that God has made us for himself and that we rejected him in like bad little toys. And I think there are scenes of this in, Toy Story, in the various Toy Story movies of toys that literally run away. And the rest of the story is how God has done all that is necessary to bring a people back to himself. Jesus says over and over again, he says, the Father gave a particular people to the Son. So that the Son would pursue them and give them eternal life so that he could then give those whom the Father has given the Son so that Jesus might give us back to the Father. He says this in John chapter 6, he brings us home in beautiful ways. As to why he came, John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is God's will, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Such a truth, that God went to the ends of the earth to pursue you and to win you back as his great possession in this world. And if you understand that, If you come to terms with that, that truth, it can actually give you joy even in the midst of suffering. Actually, it can radically change every aspect of the way you view your life. I heard a story this week of a woman who had, well, frankly, she had had enough with life. 
She's been, she was in the place that maybe some of you have been in. Baby, then baby, then baby. She had three babies in the course of a number of years. And all this running around, there was lots of needs. She has baby after baby. She has a husband who is busy and she is in constant work. And she begins to struggle after the third baby with postpartum depression. And finally, this actually, this depression brings her to such a low place that she finally cracks, such, such that she did the unthinkable, and she literally abandons her family, leads a note, and says, it's not you. I could, literally could not take it any longer. I am out of here. I could not do it. I am so sorry. And everyone was alarmed. They searched, and they, they checked with her friends. They checked locally. They checked all the places that she might have gone. Ultimately, the husband had to hire a private investigator and ultimately, the investigator finds her a couple states away, three to 400 miles away. And so what does her husband do? He got in a car. She had been gone for three to four weeks, and he drove to the hotel where she was, and he tapped on the door, and she opened it. And when she opened it and she saw him, she simply fell into his arms, and her words were this, I cannot believe you came and found me. That's what your God did. Because you were his. You were his child. You were his possession. You were his spouse. God, you said to God, I can't believe you searched for me. In fact, he searched for you not three to 400 miles away, but he went to the ends of the earth, to the depths of death to make you his. But do you see the language here? It's so beautiful. The father gives us a gift to the sons, and the son may give us an eternal gift back to the father. You are God's gift to God's. When God said in all the eternity, in the eternality of his desires in heaven, he said one day, treat yourself. And he treated himself with you. Now that's crazy to think about. He treated himself with you, and therefore you are his chosen possession, it says in 1 Peter 2.9. And there is a people given to Jesus to the redeemed that he might gift us back to the Father. And if that isn't enough... It says that the Bible says that we are his people and we are given to Jesus by the Father and we're given to, the, by Jesus, we're given to Jesus by the Father and by the, Jesus back to the Father. But do you see that God has actually set his love on you before you were born? He actually, before the world was made, you see, it wasn't that God looked through the, the strand, the sands of time through history and saw that one day maybe that you would come to him and he loved you all the way back then knowing that you would come back and return to him. That's not how it works. Wouldn't that undercut the very love of God? The searching, possessing love of God. Instead, the story of the Bible is this, is that God set his love upon you before the foundations of the world such that when you ran from him, he said, I will not wait for you ever to turn back to me, but I will come and get you myself. You see, if it was up to our initiative, it would never have happened. But the initiative of us being God's possession is all God's. You weren't even around yet, and yet God had you on his mind. And God said, you are mine. Long before you wanted him, he wanted you. That is an amazing thought. Before you even knew him, he wanted you. Some of you may have read Philip Yancey, a Philip Yancey book or two through the years. I've actually been using him, his book on prayer quite a bit. He is a great and fabulous writer. He's got a number of books 
But Anthony himself has a kind of incredible story. And one of the accounts of his own life is he flew out to see his mother one Mother's Day weekend. And at some point during the weekend, he and his mother were having a, a moment of nostalgia. And so she took down all the old, the kind of the old family pictures and his baby pictures. And they were looking at various ones. And at one point, he stumbled across one picture that looked like it had been terribly mistreated. I mean, this thing it looked like it had been run through the washer. It was all crumpled up, almost like somebody was angry at the picture. And yet it was there amongst this treasured box of, of pictures. And he asked his mother why in the world had he either kept the picture or why it had been treated so terribly and so awfully. And she said, well, that's a picture of you when you were one year old. She said, you know, you remember your father, your father had polio. And he was in an iron lung in the hospital in downtown Chicago. And back then, children, particularly for those who had parents with polio, were not allowed to go visit the patients in those days. And so your father never got to see you. He never got to be with you. But he had me bring you one lone singular picture. And he, he was sitting there laying for months and months at a time as he lay there dying, immobile in this iron lung. And he had me place the picture in such a way that he could look up at any time in the midst of his iron lung, and see your face. And he could hold your picture. And so for months, this is the picture that your dad held. And he said that realization that this man that he never knew, and he never has any recollection of meeting, is this thought that his father loved him and adored him. And he said it was like the, the feeling that when he met God the Father in his dorm room when he was in college, when he knew that there was a God out there that loved him and knew him before he had ever done anything. God gave you to Jesus. You are a gift. And you're Jesus' gift back to the Father. Now understand this. In the face of hatred, when a world looks at you and says, I hate you, when a world looks at you, when your children say they hate you, when life is difficult and you begin to wonder, does God actually have good things for me? You remember this truth. You are his. You are his gift to himself. This world stinks. It is, it is stressful. I, I, I mean, I know for me, I am sad a lot of the time. I work and I toil. You work and you toil. You spill blood, blood, sweat, and tears. And yet all of your toil doesn't seem for naught. seems like the world just kind of ruins everything. But you hear this, I love you, God says, and I am yours. And you're mine. How do you endure and have a faithful presence? How do you have joy in a world that is difficult? You hear this over and over and over again. Lord, this world hates my guts. Everything about this place feels like living in front of a sneering crowd. This world enjoys my downfall. They revel in my struggles. They rejoice at my weaknesses. They applaud my sinfulness. And God says in the midst of that, you can have joy because you are mine. You are my treasured possession. Do you hear it? Would you wake up every day longing to hear that from God over and over and over again? So that's your breath, your life, your water, your bread. Now, if you're God's treasured possession... Don't you think he would do whatever it takes to make sure that you are never taken from his hand? Do you think he would ever let you go? You are his prized possession. He sent his son to into death to make you his. Would he ever let you out of his hand? That's the second thing I want you to see. See, if you're going to have joy in the midst of a world that hates you, in a world of evil and suffering, you have to know that you are God's. You belong to him, but you have to also know that you are kept by God's. 
He is going nowhere, and he's not letting you go anywhere. Verses 11 and 12, here's what it says. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So he says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus prays that the Father would keep you safe. Jesus prays, even now, he's praying this kind of prayer, that you would be safe in the Father's hands. And this is not a prayer that nothing bad would ever happen to you. That's not what this prayer is saying. Or that your life will be smooth and you will have no problems. That's not what this prayer is saying. Jesus is not saying, keep them safe. And by that I mean, don't ever let anything ever bad happen to them, ever. Now what this prayer is saying is that in the midst of bad things happening to us, when things go wrong, when tragedy starts, when we're faced with hatred and suffering, that we would remain faithful because God has clung to us. That those things will not drive us. In fact, in biblical language, the concept of keeping is throughout the scriptures. We, you hear it almost every week in the ironic benediction that I, I say over you. What's the first line? You hear it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Keep you. And the idea here is that you would be safe. What's he say? I want you to keep them safe, Father, in your name. What does that mean? To be in the name of God is to say that God is your fortress, in other words, it's the name of God, when we reflect on someone's name, it means all that their unchanging character is. And therefore, to say, God, keep them safe in your name means this. May all that you are, all of your character, all your omnipotence, all your wisdom, all your omniscience, all your sovereignty, all your goodness, all your kindness, may they be the four walls that are the fortress around keeping them close to you. Proverbs 18 says this, the name of the Lord's is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So do you run to this truth? And in the midst of a world that hates you, in the midst of a world that is difficult and is full of suffering and evil, are you running to this, to the strong tower? Now you may ask this, what about Judas? Jesus is talking specifically about his disciples here, and he has to particularly bring up Judas, who he calls here the son of destruction. Does it mean that there are exceptions of Jesus' promise to keep us? Well, I'm going to simply say no, because Jesus has actually said from all along that he keeps those who are truly his, and he has said from the very beginning, he has prophesied that Judas is not one of his. He actually says it in John 6, 71, says that Judas will betray him, and John's actually, John 16, he actually quotes Psalm 41, referring to Judas's betrayal of him. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus did not fail Judas. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would fail. Judas was not his. He didn't lose him. Jesus was never gifted with Judas. The Father had not gifted Judas to Jesus, and therefore Jesus didn't give Judas back to the Father. But those who were given to Jesus, who he outlines here as the other 11, he succeeded perfectly in keeping them. And he says, I guarded them, and I have kept them while I've been on this earth. And the same way he guards and keeps all who are truly his now. You might ask this, but what about my failures? What about my failures? What about, does that mean I am, does that mean I'm not one of the chosen ones? Does that mean I'm not truly his? Well, it should give you a question to actually run back to him, but I also want you to recognize this. Think about the context of John 17 and who Jesus is praying in front of. 12 men who he has just looked at and said what about what they're going to do to him that night. What are they going to do? 
Are they going to stick around? Are they going to remain close to him? Are they going to cling to Jesus like a vice grip with great faith? No, he says, you're going to betray me. You're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. And guess what? That's exactly what they do. They do. And yet, why do they not fail ultimately? Because Jesus clung to them. This is what Jesus says about Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, we saw this a number of weeks back. Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you will strengthen your brothers. I want you to see what Jesus is praying right now is a prayer just like that for you. That your faith would not fail for God to keep you, for Jesus to pray that the Father would keep us, is to pray that our faith would not fail. Yes, you may sin. Yes, you may fail God. But isn't it a beautiful truth? This whole comfort and why this is so great is it doesn't actually rest on whether you're a failure or not. It rests on God's faithfulness. If you like doctrine, this is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The fact that those who God has chosen, those who God has clung to, he will never let go of his grasp. That my confidence in this life is not in my consistency or in my ability to persevere in the faith, but my confidence is in God, in his word, in his promises, in his ability to keep hold of me. Our confidence in your future salvation rests on the mercies of God's and on Christ's high priesthood that now advocates for you today. See, we talk about the perseverance of the saints, but really it should be the perseverance of the Savior. That we have a God who perseveres, that he clings to you, and all the things would actually seek to drip you out of his hands. But he says, that will never happen. First Peter 3 through 7, he actually, or through 5, we see this communicated. as the one who is, set, who is preserved by God, and the Savior persevered on his behalf. Peter says this, he has caused us, that's Jesus. Jesus caused us to be born again, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why should you bless and praise God? Because we have an omnipotent God of heaven and earth who is keeping you and sustaining you so that you will never finally fail and lose your faith. You cannot lose an inheritance that is kept for you in heaven. Jesus says it in John chapter 10, verses 28. I have given them eternal life, and they will never perish, because no one can snatch them out of my hands. No one can snatch them out of my hands. No one, not the enemies in this world, not even your own weaknesses, can loosen the grip of God's love for you. And therefore, in the face of hatred, in the face of suffering, in a world surrounded by evil, you can have joy, and you can have courage, and you can have a faithful presence in this world because God says, I will never let you go. I will never let you go. You know, one of the fears of being left in this world is we're surrounded by evil, aren't we? I mean, we're utterly surrounded by evil. We're not just hated, but we're actually barraged with a world that screams at us to give up and to give in. We have a world that screams at us and says, listen, give in to the sin and the temptation of this world. It would just be, your life would be so much better. And maybe it would. On a temporal, maybe your life would be so much better if you'd simply give up and give in. The world screams at us like a sadistic drill sergeant over us saying that we might as well give up. That you might as well give in. Throw in the towel with living for Jesus, of being a faithful present in this world. Actually just give in to evil and live the way you want to live. 
How do you have joy in such a world? How do you have joy? Jesus says, I will keep you. I will keep you. I will not let you go. The king of kings is determined to bring you home safely, even when the world looks like you're surrounded by evil that clings to you, that runs after you, that bombards you every day. Jesus says, I got you. And Christ, who goes into the heavenly places, our intercessor, and prays for our perseverance every day that we would not be lost. And guess what the answer of the Father is? A resounding yes. I will keep them. I will keep them. That's why in Philippians 1 verse 6, it says this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Even, even in the face of evil, even in a world that taunts you and tempts you to sin, Jesus says, I will complete my work in you. I got this. I'll keep you. So here's your joy. That even while you live in enemy territory, even while you live in a world that hates you, even while you're surrounded by evil, you are God's and he will keep you. But it is not just that. Why are we still here? I mean, if I'm yours and you're going to keep me and Jesus, you're bailing out of here, you get to leave. Why don't you go ahead and just take me? Why am I even here? Here's your joy. Last point, you are sanctified by God. You see, he will set you apart. He'll keep you. You're his, but it's not just that. He will set you apart for his purposes in this world. He says this in verse 17 through 19, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus says, this is his other petition to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why are we still here? Because you are sent ones into the world. In verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Now there's some unraveling to do and some exegesis to do in regards to the word sanctified and consecrated. In verse 19 and verse 17, there is this word sanctified or consecrated. It's actually the same exact word underneath both of those. It is the Greek word hagiadzo. It's where we get the word holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated. All are bound up in this word. It is to be set apart as consecrated. You know what it is to consecrate something? It's where you set something apart for a particular purpose. For a particular purpose. That's when you use the word consecrate. They used to consecrate utensils for the temple. This is an object that is for the purpose of worshiping God, and so we're going to cleanse it with this special oil, and that's going to be consecrated. And so you are consecrated for a special purpose, right? When people come to your house, some of you may have this, you know, most of you may not, especially those of you who are younger, but you, you may have a special guest come to your house for dinner, and you pull out the fine china, and your kids go, what in the, where did we get this? Where has this been? And you go, well, we set it apart. This dinner is special. It is dedicated. It is consecrated. It is consecrated. That's why we bring out the fine china, because this has a particular purpose of welcoming special people, and that is who you are. You are set apart for, set apart for a particular purpose. But the other way in which hagiazo is used is the word holy. You are set apart to be holy. When the angels say that God is holy, 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 they are saying that God is set apart from us in the sense of his character, that he is beyond us, that he is above us, that his character and his integrity and his moral fiber is perfect. And so the second meaning in the word means purified, cleansed from sin. That's what it refers to us. And so when, when he's talking here, when Jesus is saying, sanctify them, he's using a play on words. Sanctify them, Cleanse them, wash them, make them holy, make them morally right, make them beautiful. For what purpose? 
so that I might send them into this world. Sanctify them, make them morally beautiful, make them lovely to behold, so that I might send them into this world, so that they may be my messengers of my good news into this world. And so when Jesus prays that God would sanctify us, he is doing so on multiple levels. He is praying for your missional activity, that you've been consecrated, and while you are still in this world, here's why you're here, and why you can endure and you can have joy in the midst of this world. Because you're here for a reason, that's why. You're here because God has sent you into this world to be a beautiful light, a shining star, something glamorous to behold, a holy nation, a beautiful priesthood set apart of his own choosing so that you might proclaim his excellencies in this world. But here's the question, though. How are we consecrated? How are we made holy? How are we set apart to be sent ones into this world? How does God do it? Well, two ways he gives us here, right? To sanctify them by what? The truth. And then he says it very plainly. Your word is truth. So what is the means by which Jesus desires to see us sanctified, both set apart and sent into this world, but set apart by the means of making us holy? How does he do that? Through his words. Listening to God's word over and over and over again. It's why Ephesians 5, when Jesus talks about how his love for the church is like a husband's love for the bride. And he says, my bride, I wash her with the water of the word so that she is radiant and beautiful. And this is what we need from God. God to wash us with his word. And this is what Jesus is praying. He's praying for you even now. That even in this sermon, with all the weaknesses of this water, that it might wash you and wash you clean so that you might be set apart and know that I am God's special and chosen device and vessel in this world to proclaim his beauty and his glory. He sets you apart. He sanctifies you by his word. But there's another one, isn't there? There's another way he does it. What does it say in verse 19? Jesus says, how are we sanctified? And for their sake, I consecrate myself, Jesus says, that they may also be sanctified in truth. How does the word have power to sanctify you, to send you and to make you blameless? Jesus says, you must be sanctified by him and by his consecrating work that he does upon himself. Now, what is going on here? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this, Father, I have consecrated myself. What does that mean? I have set myself apart for a particular purpose. I have committed and I have dedicated myself to do your will. I have set myself apart in this world to do your will. And what is the task for which Jesus set himself apart for? To make you holy, to make you beautiful, to make you blameless, to wash you with his own beauty to wash you with his own righteousness, to wash you so that you are his permanently and completely. What has Jesus come to this world to do? To be cut off, to be set aside, to be put upon a cross, to be put aside so that he, he is consecrated for the purpose of winning for himself a people that he might make them holy and make them beautiful to be stand out in this world. So how? How does Jesus answer his own prayer? He says, I am the one, I consecrate myself so that I might sanctify them. How does Jesus get you ready for your purpose of being a sent one in this world? He does it by dying so that he might wash you with himself. The joy that we have in the face of hatred and evil and suffering is that Jesus says, you're mine. 
And he says, I have done all that is necessary to keep you mine. And you are mine and you are set apart by the blind blood so that you may fulfill my wondrous purposes in this world. Christian, your joy is that your purpose still, you have purpose. This is really important and we'll look at this more next week because the next way we're going to look at this prayer is that it is a missional prayer. It's a prayer setting you aside for this purpose to be sent ones and therefore what in the world does it mean to be in the world and not of the world? That's what we're going to look at next week. But one of the ways in which Christians most often get this wrong and get life wrong as Christians is this thought, I am simply biding my time till I can be jetted out of here. Until whatever it is, the Star Trek move God does in the rapture, and he pulls me and plucks me out of this place so I can be done with this terrible place, and I'm simply trying to cling on for anything until the very end, and Jesus says, no, 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 I have a much greater purpose for you than that. I'm here to make you beautiful and lovely and to send you into this world so that you may manifest my goodness and the story of my loveliness to the world around you. This is your purpose. And so are you discouraged this morning? Do you need joy in the midst of simply the mundane, run-of-the-mill, a day in and day out, this life stinks and annoying and is hard and ugh? Look to these truths. That Jesus daily, eternally intercedes on your behalf. Jesus is the shining star that beckons up in the heavens that says, that speaks with effervescence, that you are his, that he has done all that is necessary to keep you, and that he has you here for a reason. For a reason. That gets us ready for next week, and we'll see what it looks like to be in the world, but not of it. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that for those, this was some simple meat and potatoes. And yet, it is, uh, it is the daily bread that we forget. We are people who are so busy filling ourselves up with the things of this world that no wonder we're discouraged, Lord, because we have not taken the time to sit and listen to you praying over us. I love the beautiful truth that you, pray, you sing over us, too. You sing over us your prayers. You sing over us your love for us. You sing over your promises to us. You sing over us your purposes and your plans for us. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Spirit, your Son has spoken, and so I pray that you would, tomorrow morning, on Tuesday, who likes a Tuesday? On a Tuesday afternoon, when it feels like the world is surrounding us and life is more than we can handle, would we remember these truths? Would your spirit speak? Would you echo, would your spirit echo the voice of of Jesus in, in heaven praying for us so that we might listen in again and be convinced of your love over us and that it would fill us with great joy to not just endure, but to be of people who are sent ones into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.